ancient writings of the church uh, with us. Um, Isaiah chapter 61, I was talking to my wife uh, um, while we were on uh, our trip, and uh, she had shared this passage with a cousin of hers. Uh, We had a chance to go up to her aunt's family property in the mountains, and it had belonged to her aunt's grandparents, uh, Poppy and Grandma. Uh, they um, had, he had been one of the last cowboys in San Diego County and really uh, lived off the land and had a lot of neat stories and was a, just a tremendous uh, tough guy that lived up in the mountains there. And they had a, a whole, whole bunch of property up there and they had went to his, some of his grandkids and had, had, had kind of left the family for many years. And the property uh, got run down, uh, all kinds of squatters moved onto the property and junk was brought onto the property. There were a lot of drug abuse, even uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of felons that were uh, living on the property. And so uh, her aunt and uncle, uh, the opportunity came up to buy the property back. And so uh, this, this, uh, they, they arrived at the, the ranch and just discovered, I mean, they picked up hundreds of drug needles. They, they were still chasing uh, squatters off the property even months after owning it. And there was so much cleanup. There was so much trash and so much decay and destruction that had taken place. It, it has taken them well over a year to get to this, uh, to the place where they're at. But one of the things they wanted to show us that is that uh, Elisa has these great memories as a little girl going to Poppy and Grandma's and and playing up there. They had this little cottage, little cabin there uh, on the property that uh, over the years after they had passed, decayed and crumbled and and fell apart and fell into disrepair and and was was uh, caved in and fallen apart. Well, the family had taken the original foundation, they'd cleared away all the debris, and they built a new cottage, a new cabin right on the, the old property, and uh, her aunt and uncle are, are staying in there now, and it was just beautiful to see the, the beauty that had come out of so much decay and destruction and devastation. And you know, 2020 has been a lot of different things for a lot of people, and uh, we've, we've all seen all the memes on Facebook and on social media, and we've heard the jokes. Uh, but the truth be told, it, it has been a difficult year for a lot of people. And uh, even if it's just emotionally, uh, the, the emotional taxing uh, nature of the year. And uh, as I was reflecting on uh, what Elisa had, had texted to her cousin about sharing this passage, and, and uh, I just couldn't get this text out of my mind as it, as it kept coming, uh, coming to me over and over throughout the week. I sense God leading me to, to just talk about this this morning as we begin to turn, uh, we've turned the page on a new year, and no matter what 2020 has brought you, how, what, what scale level of difficulty and frustration and hurt or heartache it may have had, and, and maybe some of the struggles that have come about this past year had nothing to do with the coronavirus in your life. Maybe there were other relational difficulties, maybe other spiritual struggles uh, that were there, maybe even before uh, all the pandemic and everything. I just want to share with you one main thought this morning, that God specializes in bringing beauty out of the ashes. Our God specializes in bringing life and hope and joy out of that which is seemingly devastating. The title of our message today is Our Liberating Life-Giving Savior. And I want to just read all of um, chapter 61. In fact, I'm going to read a couple verses of 62, even though we're only going to look at really the first three verses of chapter 61. This is such a beautiful passage. I'd like to just walk through it together. So Isaiah chapter 61, beginning here in verse 1. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make, them, uh, make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord will give. That the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The, the Jewish people, Judah here, was in captivity as Isaiah was writing this, and he was looking forward to a time where they would experience de deliverance from God that he would accomplish on behalf of his people. This passage may be familiar to you, perhaps you've studied it before, but it may also be familiar because you may remember that in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus was beginning his public ministry, this was his very first sermon, as it were, in the synagogue. He was in Nazareth, where he had grown up, and he went to the synagogue, according to Luke 4, 16 and following, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, the text says. And he turns to this passage. Now, I don't know if you were, as we read that, if you wondered who the me was in 61 verse 1. Who was speaking, who the first person was. Obviously, the prophet Isaiah is writing, but he's speaking in the voice of God. He's speaking as what we know of as the Messiah, Jesus himself. Because Jesus read this passage. It says he enrolled the scroll in Luke 4, standing that day in the synagogue, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the passage says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That was a first century version of a mic drop, as it were. And it says, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was he saying to them? He says, I am the one who is here, who has been anointed by God to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort those who mourn. To bring beauty from the ashes. For years, God's people had languished under the suffering of their sin. And here, God was fulfilling His words, the words of Isaiah 61, that Jesus was there to bring new, to bring restoration out of destruction. There are a couple of things that I wanted to, to see here. I don't have it on the screen, but if you're taking notes, the first thought here is that we see his anointing. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, he begins, By the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He had been given a special commission. He'd been given a special job. Sometimes when, when, uh, when you were a kid, maybe uh, you were excited when you were given that first extra bit of responsibility, that extra bit of like, wow, they're literally letting me do this on my own. And you felt that sense of pride, like I've been commissioned here. I've been given this task and I'm going to go and do it. And I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm going to make them proud. Jesus here was given a task. He was anointed by God. He was sent into this world. We've celebrated that over Christmas. And I, I hope we don't stop. I hope we don't leave that with Pack it away with all the decorations and lights. We reflect on Jesus' commissioning. He is sent by the Father. And we see the whole the Trinity here. The Son is speaking. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord, that would be the Father, has anointed me to bring good news. So we see the Trinity here. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in this mission to bring redemption, to bring restoration and healing to bring beauty out of the ashes, as it were. He's been anointed by God. That, we, can't, we can't honor Jesus too much because he is the one commissioned by God. He is the one sent to bring redemption and salvation to us. But secondly, we see his mission. We saw his anointing, but we see his mission and his mission is listed in the next couple of verses here. We see, first of all, 
that he was to bring good news to the poor. The uh, one writer said that the that this term good news is not restricted to financial uh, or material conditions. Nor is there any justification in the context for limiting the reference to the oppressed minority of the righteous persons. He's speaking here of the poor uh, as those who are distressed or in trouble for any reason, including sin. You know, when we see that word poor, we often think of the, 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 those who are financially struggling. And, and to be sure, that is encapsulated in this term here. Jesus went and ministered to those. But it's a broader term. It refers to all those who are in need. That's all of us. We all have this spiritual need. We're without Christ when we're born into this world. And we need his salvation. We need his forgiveness. This writer goes on to say, who are the poor? It's those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his just vengeance meted out against those who've misused them. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes and sackcloth and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant, the Messiah, shouts good news. And I ask you this morning, have you felt like that? Throughout this last year, have you felt broken by life? Have you gone through times where you just felt like you had no more heart to try? I want you to know that this Messiah, this one prophesied here in Isaiah 61, specializes in coming to those who are broken in heart. Those who are devastated by the circumstances of life by the addictions that they find themselves in, by the sin that is so closely bound itself to their hearts. Jesus is the one who longs to restore and to make new those who are poor. And it says that he's bringing good news, not just well wishes, not empty platitudes. He's bringing true, real, genuine good news. Like good news that can actually bring about a heart change, a change of circumstances, a change of situation. The Hebrew word here that's used is baser. It's used often in Isaiah used in Isaiah 52, 7, a passage that may be familiar to you. It says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The mission of Jesus is to bring that good news to a hurting world. And you see, what happens here in the text, in Isaiah, and furthermore in the New Testament, is that this mission of Jesus to bring good news, well, his mission becomes our mission. He says, how beautiful are the feet 
of those who herald this good news. You see, it's Jesus who first came and proclaimed and, and fulfilled the prophecy of a Messiah. But we then take up his mantle and hold forth this same good news to a lost and hurting world. Jesus wasn't just bringing good news to the poor. This passage further just extrapolates this. It really all kind of, um, they all kind of are circling around the same idea. This idea of bringing beauty out of the ashes, of bringing uh, wholeness and newness from devastation and ruin. The second thing he says here is he binds up the brokenhearted. He binds up the brokenhearted. I love that picture of of. Of, 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 of a God who is, who's tenderly hurting uh, or, or, or fixing up wounds. Uh, our, our dog recently had uh, developed a hot spot that turned into a, uh, a hot saucer. I mean, it's like a saucer-like wound. You know, we got back from our, our trip, and, and there was uh, a lot of nastiness there. I won't go into that in case you just had a big breakfast or anything, but... Um, uh, my wife spent uh, the last couple of days just uh, um, dressing and tending to her, her wound and uh, lovingly and, and tenderly uh, caring for that injury. And, and you know, I, I, that, that, that's the picture here of, of God, that this Messiah was going to come and lovingly and tenderly bind up the wounds of his people. Not the physical wounds, although he did some of that, but more importantly, the spiritual wounds. You know, this morning, God longs to mend the wounds of your heart. He is an expert physician when it comes to binding up broken hearts. Did you know that? There are a lot of places that we go to soothe our broken hearts. We may go to food and drink. We may veg out in, in front of the television or on our phones. We may go spend money. We may go on trips or, or, or indulge in uh, illicit, uh, unbiblical un sexual behavior. But at the end of the day, none of those things will heal our broken hearts. None of those things will fix the wounds that are deep within our soul. Only Jesus can do that. And it's his specialty. It's his specialty. When you're sick and you try all these home remedies that just aren't getting anywhere, they don't work, what... What do you realize, hopefully, that you really should do? You should go see a specialist. You should go see a doctor who knows how to treat the problem. You see, so often we're wrapped up in our own home remedies, trying our own thing, trying this fulfilling thing, this salve, this ointment, and, and it does nothing to really bind up our brokenness. Only Jesus can do that. Let's go to the doctor. Let's go to the physician of our souls. The one who can truly bind us and heal us. It says that he's there to proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim liberty to the captives. That word... Uh, there's actually kind of two phrases that, that speak to this. He, he says, at the end of verse 1, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
Some of the translations struggle with that last phrase because that word opening the prison, it literally means to, to open the eyes. And there's a, the Hebrew word is reduplicated, and so it means like a wide opening of the eyes. It's like truly light, lighting up and seeing light and life for the first time. He's speaking of a spiritual liberation. To be sure, Judah would be set free from this Babylonian captivity. We know that after 70 years, God restored them and brought them back to the land. But what happened again? They had other rulers. When, the t when Jesus came, they were under Roman captivity. We know also ultimately that the Romans came in and they, they wiped out Jerusalem and they just scattered the Jews and devastated the land in 70 AD. The, the, the hope of many of these people was a, a physical liberation, a national liberation, but Jesus was getting at something far deeper. This liberty that he was proclaiming was a spiritual liberty, to be set free from sin. That ultimately is what we're longing for. Our founding fathers, as we established this country with, uh, with a foundation of liberty, it's been a very good thing. But ultimately, their souls were seeking something deeper than that, a spiritual liberty. That's what every man and woman seeks in this earth, to be set free from sin. And that's what the Messiah proclaims. He also proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This hints back at the year of Jubilee, as uh, you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25 if you want to dive in there. But every 50th year, Israel was to take a whole year off. They were to cancel all the debts, return uh, all the original owners of property to all the, uh, all the original families. Everything that had been sold was to go back the way it was. It was sort of like a, a whole year of like living generously and graciously. And they were to, according to Leviticus 25.10, to proclaim liberty, freedom throughout the whole land. That was everybody's job for an entire year. That, that celebration, that uh, commission was not an end in and of itself. It was to foreshadow what Jesus would do. Galatians 5.1 tells us that. Isaiah here is saying that the Messiah brings liberation to its fullest realization through the gospel. You see, you can have your family property returned to you. You can be set free from indentured servanthood. But ultimately, that doesn't get at our true heart aches, our soul needs. What, that, what can only meet those demands is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross cancels all of our debts. God says we're free to leave the past behind and to move on with joy. That is the mission of Jesus in our lives and in the world. It says he was to comfort those who mourn. The Messiah was to come and comfort those who mourn. He's not just speaking about those who are sad, those who are weeping. This reminded me of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember that Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
he wasn't just talking about us walking around with sad faces and crying because we want the presence of God. No, he was getting at something deeper. You see, the only people who can receive all of these promises, all of these ministries of Jesus, the, the, the binding of our wounds in the setting free of our souls, the only people who can receive those spiritual blessings are those who are first broken. God says that he opposes the proud. We cannot receive forgiveness of sins unless we first come in brokenhearted repentance before God. Jesus longs to comfort those who mourn, those who come with a contrite heart. Some of us can be pretty lousy comforters, you know. Somebody's going through something hard. It can be, uh, I don't know, sometimes our natural response can be just to be like, ah, get over it, especially if you're a guy, right? Come on, that's not a big deal. Let's get over it. Sometimes even when we try to show empathy, it still doesn't get uh, at the deepest level of hurt. I remember, I can't remember if I've shared this story, but I remember when I was 17, my grandmother had passed away, and it was really my first experience with loss, and I, I was really struggling how to, how to process it. And I remember we were at the visitation, and our parents had said we needed to stay for the whole visitation time. And so even as a 17-year-old, I mean, I'm supposed to be a mature, almost young man here at this point in my life, but I was struggling. I, was, I just wanted out of there. I just didn't, I didn't know how to handle the grief. I didn't know how to process the sorrow as people were coming up. And so I decided, I decided uh, to kind of resort to my default when I'm uncomfortable with emotional situations. And I, I went towards humor, which isn't always the best thing to do at a, at a viewing. And um, I remember one lady, a family friend came up and I didn't know her well enough to say this, but um, I did it anyways, you know, 17 year old adolescent male, whatever. And so uh, she said, listen, I just want you to know, I am so, so sorry about your grandmother. And I, I said, why? It wasn't your fault. <laughs> I thought it would be funny. She just looked at me kind of with some horror and awkwardness, and she shuffled along, and that was that. Uh, she didn't talk to me kind of the rest of the time, just kind of stayed on the other side of the room. It was, it was weird. Shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know, sometimes... Um, we struggle to bring comfort in the midst of heartache and loss, but there's one who never, ever, ever struggles for the right words. There's one who never, ever is at a loss for what we need. There's one who never awkwardly shuffles away when the silence becomes uncomfortable. Never. And it's Jesus. He longs to comfort those who mourn. Those who are broken over their sin and come in heartfelt repentance. Or those who are mourning because of devastation or loss in their life. You see, Jesus is the one who longs to come and give restoration. He said in John 10.10, 10, I, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's why we see in the next phrase here, he says, I want to give a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. I, I, I was struggling to understand that the headdress uh, imagery until I read verse 11 there where he, he speaks of 
I'm sorry, verse 10, where he speaks of it being part of the, the bridal costume, as it were, for your wedding day. And you see then that what Jesus is doing is he's, he's bringing beauty. I mean, what's more beautiful than a wedding? And, and he says, I'm bringing this marriage service together between you and me. I'm bringing this beautiful thing out of ashes. The ashes pictured, right, when, when there was mourning, when there was devastation in the land, they would put sackcloth and ashes on their body, and they would mourn. You can read about that. Like You see examples of that like in the book of Esther, for, for, for example. And he says, I'm going to trade your garments of weeping, of sorrow, for true beauty, for joy, for celebration, for total healing. And then he doesn't stop with the headdress, but then he goes on to the rest of the garment in verse, um, in verse 3 there. And he says, the oil, uh, um, he says, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So I'm going to trade you in your, your sackcloth and ashes for a garment of praise. You see, as God brings us through times of devastation, as God brings healing and hope and renewal in our life. He wants to give us a new garment, and this is a garment of worship. As we're changed, as we become more like Jesus, our hearts are flooded with joy, and we long to turn to Him in praise. All of this represents the Messiah's mission, and all of it points to this great exchange that takes place. God says, I'm going to make a swap with you. Do you ever, when you were kids, make trades? I used to collect baseball cards, and I was never very good at coming out even on the trade. I would always feel like I got the short end of the stick. Never good at it at all. But God, God's not really good at it either because he's definitely getting the short end of the stick here. I, I, I say that metaphorically. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. This is his point. He's, he's taking our garbage, our filth, our hurt, our pain. He's taking that, and that's what Jesus took upon himself upon the cross. He says, I'm going to take all of this stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to bear it for you, and I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you renewal. I'm going to give you joy. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you beauty from the ashes and the ruin and devastation of your life. I'm going to bring renewal like you could never, ever have imagined. And then we see his ultimate goal at the end of verse 3, the end of this. He says that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Love that phrase. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This oaks of righteousness refers back to things that have been said previously in the book. We don't have time to turn there. But even just a few verses before that, what we read here in chapter 60, verse 21, he says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the works of my hands, that I may be glorified. Back in chapter 1, Isaiah likened all of our efforts to make ourselves mighty, uh, to oak trees that would wither and dry up and burn. We were, as we were in California here last week, we drove through some of the area where they were just having some of those wildfires, and you saw the devastation and ruin on the land that it brought. 
uh, we, Elisa and I drove past the, uh, the place where we had our first kiss 20-plus um, years ago. And they had had a fire there 17 years ago, and that is still not restored back to what it looked like uh, when we first met. The, the ruin and the devastation of the fire is that great, and it's that long-lasting. And that's what uh, Isaiah likens our efforts to be righteous, to, to heal ourselves, to grasp after this joy and fulfillment. He likens it to an oak tree that just withers and burns up. But here now God is demonstrating a contrast. He says when you give up your self-sufficiency and your efforts and your self-exaltation, God brings forth beauty and life. He will make you that beautiful oak tree with deep roots. When we try and make ourselves great, when we try and fix our problems on our own, we end up burnt and destroyed. It's only when we admit our helplessness and utter dependence on Jesus that we are made righteous and our roots go down deep. And it says, did you see the last phrase? It says at uh, the end of verse 3, that he may be glorified. It all goes back to God. Uh, our salvation, our healing, our renewal, our comfort, it's not an end of itself. God does not exist to make us happy. He exists to glorify himself. And as he renews and saves us and redeems us and regenerates us, all of that reflects back on him because he's the one doing it and he gets the glory and praise. We get the blessing, he gets the glory. There was, however, a phrase that I left out I left it out just as Jesus did when he read this passage in the synagogue in Luke 4. The phrase I left out that Jesus did not include was found in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That phrase, the day of vengeance of our God, was not read by Jesus in the synagogue that day. And many commentators have wondered why. I think it's simply this. Because Jesus was there at that moment in his first coming to proclaim the favor of God. The day of vengeance waits for his second coming. This passage will be ultimately fulfilled. Most of it was fulfilled in his first coming. But his second coming will include a fulfillment of that phrase. You see, Jesus has come to proclaim favor, comfort to all those who mourn, all those who come with broken-hearted gladness before God. But we must remember that the judgment of God is a real thing. You see, and this is where I want us to land today. If the, this mission of Jesus is to proclaim this good news, and we then are his ambassadors, his teammates, as it were, to pick up the torch, as he told us in Acts, you shall be my witnesses, and to continue this mission in the world today. If that's true, what is our motivation? Love? A longing to... See others experience the wholeness and renewal that we have? Yes. But I think that we would do well to remember that the day of vengeance of our God 
is a very real thing. You see, for those who don't repent, to those who don't mourn, those who don't come before him in humble submission, this is a very real and a terrifying thing. That God's wrath will be poured on those who don't repent and turn to him and receive the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. As we come into 2021, one of my prayers is that we have a renewed passion to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to make disciples. And if this is true, that there is a day of vengeance coming, it means hell is a very real place for those who do not turn to Jesus and find forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon has famously said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies and if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Charles Peace was a convicted criminal who, upon hearing hell spoken so coldly of by a prison chaplain, who accompanied him to his execution, allegedly responded to the chaplain by saying this, Sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believed, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it hand on knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of what you speak. as we rejoice in the healing that God offers, <laughs> let's not keep that remedy, that glorious cordial to ourselves. May we, like Jesus, proclaim this good news. I don't know where you are this morning, Maybe you came in here feeling as one of these described in this passage, brokenhearted, worn out, exhausted, at the end of your rope. Jesus longs to bring you healing. He longs for you to be the one, for him to be the one to whom you cling, to whom you find refreshment for your soul. And then the commission we have is to take this gospel message, to take this good news and share it with a lost and dying world. As we continue to reflect upon the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we get to celebrate communion together this morning. The bread and juice here that's in front of us, it represents the body and blood of our Lord and Savior. You see, As, as believers living in Jesus' day, as, as, as followers of God read this passage in Isaiah 61, and as they, they read the Old Testament prophecies, they saw all of these proclamations of renewal and hope. And they had like, they, 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 they grabbed a hold of them and they held on. They loved these promises. They waited for their fulfillment. 
They were so excited to have a, this proclamation of victory, to be set free. And they thought, they began to think that Jesus was the one that was going to overthrow the Romans and that they were going to have this national uh, freedom, this, this, this civil liberty that, that was going to come upon them. And they were finally going to be autonomous and no more ruled by nations. What they didn't see that was, they were, what Jesus was speaking of was primarily spiritual and it would have to be accomplished through a servant who was a suffering servant whose blood would be shed to make this healing possible. As we celebrate communion together for the first time in this new year, I want to just give us a couple extra moments to reflect on the, the, the liberation that was accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross. If you happen to be visiting here or you've never had communion with us before, I want to let you know you don't have to be a, a member here or anything. If, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior, if you've experienced this binding up of your brokenhearted and you've been set free from your sin, the, the penalty and the punishment of your sin through Jesus, you've experienced his righteousness because of his finished work on the cross, we want to invite you to join us in celebrating communion today. Uh, if you need um, gluten-free bread, that's, that's here, that's marked at this spot um, as, we, as the worship team plays here in a moment after we pray. You can just come on up out of your seat, come to the front and, and grab the, the bread and the juice and, and uh, uh, take it at your will as, as they sing. I want us to just take a moment and bow our heads as we come into this new year. Let's just reflect on what Jesus has, has done for us and what he longs to do through us as we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.